Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And, Aaron, uh, and Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of, our, of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses, so as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. My friends, this is the holy, inerrant word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So there's a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma that recently became viral, and uh, a megachurch pastor, and he went viral because he, after gathering phlegm, like saliva and spit, and phlegm in his hand, he put it on another man's face. Um, and he was going over Mark 8, you know, when Jesus would spit in the eye of a blind man and uh, anoint his uh, eyes with his hands, and then that blind man was healed. The means by which Christ performed this miracle, though, was to highlight what would happen in the very next verses in Mark chapter 8. That was the point of the passage. Namely, that if you look at the passage in Mark 8, you look at how this man was healed, and then you look at the very next verses, it was the understanding that the Bible is giving us that people are going to start to recognize Jesus as the Christ. Because at first he, he saw like people like big trees they had to do it again, and then he would be able to see clearly. And then Jesus goes, who do people say I am? That was like, you're Elijah. And then Peter would go, you are the Christ. That was the point of the passage. But a clear misreading of that passage would be to think that this is a means for me to now heal someone of their infirmity, is to put a gratuitous amount of phlegm on their faces 
Only someone who does not understand scripture would do such a thing. Why does a person call himself a leader or pastor of a church when they do things like this? Another so-called pastor in South Africa, this is real, this is not satire, he farts on people. He farts on people to heal them. And according to him, he also needs to sit on their faces to fart so that the healing power, and this is his words, that the healing power would enter their body through their nostrils. And at first glance, you might think this is some kind of satire, and I'm making a joke, but I'm not. Because people apparently have to wait up to two months so that some guy could fart on their faces. What is going on? And how is it that all these hucksters have tens of thousands of followers, possibly more because of social media. The Bible doesn't leave us without explanation. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, it says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Because it's on social media, and I always do the things I warn people not to do, I get to read some of the comment sections um, of these posts. And many of these charismatic and Pentecostal preachers, when they post a video or some kind of... Uh, you know, teaching online. I look at all the comments, and the comments are always the same. It's always the same response. And they basically say this. This is what I really needed to hear. This is what I needed to hear. This is exactly what I needed to hear today. You know, it's been four weeks since we've updated our worship order, and I'm very relieved that so many of us have been encouraged. Um, they have asked me questions. They've listened to the podcast that we have explaining the changes in detail. Um, and then a lot more have also responded to me saying how much they appreciate the changes. And some ask, why did I change the worship order? And ultimately, to answer that, it boils down to this question. Who's the audience? Who's the audience here? Who is the worship for? Are all of you that's seated here right now, is this worship ultimately designed for you? Or is worship that comes from the words worth and ship, which means we are displaying the worth of God, that means it is done coram deo, coram deo in Latin meaning before the face of God, or in the presence of God? Is that what is it? What it is? Is worship coram deo, meaning it is done before the face of God? And getting this answer right is the difference between either putting the cart before the horse or having the horse before the cart. One way will have you going nowhere, and the other way will have you moving forward. And so how do you know then, then that 
This way is the right way to worship God. How can you be so confident that this way is right and other folk perhaps have it wrong? Maybe even the leaders of Bethel in Redding, California, maybe they're right when they teach you that you have to be willing to make mistakes to eventually get it right. And that is why you don't ever see the charismatic church as a whole denounce what is clearly out of bounds, like spitting or farting or nibbling during worship. Because it comes down to the theological understanding of what we say is doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine simply means a teaching or a gathering of teachings. It comes from the word didasco in Greek or doctrina in Latin. And that's where we get the word, actually get the word for doctor. Doctor is from the word doctrine or doctrina or didasco. Doctor in early ancient world or even like 1000 AD up to maybe the 16th century, meant um, church father or a religious scholar or a religious teacher. That's what doctor meant. And since the 16th century, the European countries started to call medical doctors just doctors. And now that is why we refer to any medically licensed physician or surgeon colloquially as a doctor. I personally like that. I don't think we need to have uh, someone having a heart attack calling for a doctor and then someone responds because they have a PhD in the spirituality of snowboarding. Answer that call. And yeah, there really is a PhD in the spirituality of snowboarding. But doctrine, broadly speaking, refers to any kind of teaching. And the Bible has at least three different kinds of doctrines that it references. So number one refers doctrines as the teachings of men. In Mark chapter 7, the second part of verse 6 to 8, Jesus says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So it could be the teachings or the traditions of man. Number two, doctrines could also mean the teachings of demons. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. And number three, the Bible talks about the teachings of God. In John chapter 6, verse 45, it says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus was referencing this to himself. In any church, then, it isn't about whether you focus then on doctrine or not. You know, there, there are criticisms that we could possibly receive about this. Oh, you focus on doctrine so much. That is a nonsensical statement. The question isn't whether you focus on doctrine or not. The question is, which of these three doctrines do you follow? Is it the teaching of men or of demons, or of God? And how do you know which one you're actually following? 
The passage today starts off with Nadab and Abihu. And who are or who were these men? They were the sons of Aaron. And Aaron was the high priest of the true and living God. That meant that Nadab was heir apparent to Aaron. And Abihu was right after him. They were not delinquents as far as we know. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, when God would invite Moses and the 70 elders of Israel to go up to the mountain where God was residing in, he also would mention by name Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders come up to me, come up to where the Lord is. You know, this mountain... When God came down to the mountain, this mountain was holy that even no animal or person could even go near the base of the mountain, otherwise they would be put to death. And so the company that Nadab and Abihu were aligned with were wholly set apart men by God himself that he had ordained. This wasn't just a group closest to God, they were literally with God. In verse 10, it says that under his feet, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, it says that under his feet, that means God's feet, was like a pavement of sapphire stone, the very heaven for clearness. Sapphire stone was the heavenly rock. You could see this kind of depiction and metaphor used in Ezekiel, but It clearly shows that God would even condescend, that means come down, even back in Exodus, even before Isaiah 6, where the angels are are crying out, holy, 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 and even before the transfiguration. And guess who had the honor and that particular witness of this holy condescension? It was Nadab and Abihu. Aaron was around over 83 years old. He was at least 83 years old at the time because at 83, they went, uh, he went with Moses, who was 80, to, the, to, you know, to save the Israelites from slavery. And so Aaron was at least 83. So he was over 83 at the time. So it would only make sense that his children then weren't young children. They weren't like these kids running around but they were possibly well-matured, possibly maybe even in their 60s. And so there should be no doubt then that these, by all the standards that we understand, were highly regarded, well-esteemed men of God. And only one chapter in Leviticus had passed where God gave them the instructions, the doctrine in which people were to approach God in worship to give proper sacrifice, and then the blessings and benefits that would result afterwards. It was only one chapter in chapter 9 in Leviticus. It was so exciting when when it happened, so magnificent, that when God would receive their offering, that people would see God's fire consume the offering, they would shout and fall on their faces. That's the very verse before what we read today. They would shout and fall on their faces. But it's the very, very next verse after that, 
when Nadab and Abihu come into the picture, they take their own censers, they put fire and incense on it, and offer unauthorized, or another word for this is strange in Hebrew, alien, unauthorized, unpermitted, strange, alien fire. This was not how they were supposed to get the fire. The fire on the incense altar was only about a foot and a half wide, so it needed to be perpetually maintained. And so because the fire was not perpetual, it needed constant attention. And the altar, because it was such a small, confined place, then they needed, whoever was attending that fire, the incense fire, would have to get fire from the great brazen altar in the court. So Nadab and Abihu should have gotten that censer lit from the great brazen altar in the court because God himself had lit that great brazen altar with fire from heaven. But they took the fire from somewhere else. We don't know where, and it doesn't matter, but we do know where it was not from. It was not from the proper place. We also don't know why they would do such a thing, and some people have speculated, because if you read verse 9 of this chapter, it says that you shouldn't be drunk or drink strong like wine before carrying out your duty. So perhaps they were drunk. Uh, We don't know. But the judgment that came for such an offering, for offering strange, unauthorized fire, the judgment that came was swift, and it was deadly. But they were so close to God. You know, they experienced God. They were so close to God. They ate and drank with God. Surely if anyone would receive a measure of any kind of leniency and judgment, shouldn't it be these two, Nadab and Abihu? But like it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality. Some might respond, yeah, I get it. God was mean, but that was in the Old Testament. We don't live in Old Testament times. So, if I may, let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 5. I'm going to be reading a section of Acts chapter 5 together. And so look, at, look with me uh, at Acts chapter 5. And this is New Testament times, right? In Acts chapter 5, I'll be reading from verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, I'm going to stop right there. Ananias and Sapphira are such interesting names. Juxtaposed with the passage that we have today, Ananias is from the Hebrew name Hananiah, right? Ananias means The Lord has been gracious. Anytime you have a Hebrew or Jewish name end with Yah, like Elijah, which is Elijah, but we put the J in there. Elijah, it means Yahweh. That's that's what the Yah means. And El means God. So if your name is Elijah, your name really means Yahweh is God. So the true God is Jehovah, right? Ananias means Yahweh has been gracious. That's what it means. That's what Ananias means. And Sapphira is from the word or the stone, the precious jewel, sapphire, 
which we just read in Exodus chapter 24. It is the heavenly jewel. So there's a man named Ananias, his wife named Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. See, he could have done anything he wanted. That was his land. And after he sold it, it was his money. But if you look at the chapter before, there was a man named Joseph. And because he was such an encouragement, they, they held him in such high esteem. They gave him a new name, Barnabas, right? The son of encouragement. And so he would sell a piece of his property and give it to the church. And everybody could share. This was such a big deal. And then knowing this, a man and his wife, Ananias Sapphira, they do the same thing. But what he does is he holds some of those proceeds back and says, this is everything that I have. I'm giving it for the Lord. And Peter, seeing this, says, you have not lied to man, but to God. In verse 5, it says this. I'm going to continue. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him, very similar to how the men that Moses commanded, uh, Nadab and Abihu's brothers, also would carry them out. Verse 7, after an interval, about three hours, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. These are people that should have known better. Jesus would even say in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. This became an idiom of sorts in the Western world, and it is most recently, in modern times, made famous by Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, where he says, with great power comes great responsibility. But the point is, they should have known better. They should have known better. Where are we now, though? I'm afraid that this kind of story may go past our heads and go straight into offending us first, right? We are a generation that comes to worship casually, casually dressed with casual attitudes and with a cavalier disregard for consecrated worship. 
This kind of careless and self-indulgent worship is something our generation ought not to be known for, but unfortunately is. We are more concerned with offending our own sensibilities than the utterly holy God. The great lesson that we see in both the Old and New Testaments is that we must not offer to God strange fire. But perhaps it's for a popular appeal or brand or money or whatever it is, we attribute things in the church to God that are not authorized in his word. And this is where I want to come back to why we worship the way we do. The theological term for this is the regulative principle of worship. Some of you already know that we are a Reformed congregation. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we're Calvinist, covenantal, confessional, regulative principle? And the answer to those questions are yes, 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 and yes. Why, though? Because all these things are modern terms for what we simply know to be the gospel. When we talk about Reformed, when we talk about Calvinism, when we talk about Covenantal, when we talk about Confessional, when we talk about Regulative, it's because it equals the Gospel. These are the things that we find, though, as we study and mine the Word of God. There are critics, though, to our reverence for the Word of God or the Bible. And they will say, well, the Bible is not God, right? And that is true. The Bible is not God. And I'll let Spurgeon answer that criticism. He says, to me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice, and I do not hear it without awe. To me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice, and I do not hear it without awe. And this has everything to do with our sanctification, the topic that we have been going over in the multiple weeks prior. For Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them. This is the high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying for the people that will follow him. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus prayed for you in John 17. And he says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So why do we worship the way we do then? Why not just meet in a McDonald's or a Starbucks or some kind of cafe and worship there and be like, we're two or more gathered and then we worship? Or why not just worship in our homes? Didn't the early church do that anyway? Why don't we have clowns come out and act out Bible stories? Why do we need to sing or even have a sermon? And is high liturgy important? And so what is the regulative principle of worship then? And how is it biblical? The regulative principle of worship means exactly that. When we say the regulative principle, it means it is the biblical principle. It is the principle that states that the corporate worship of God, that means when the people of God gather for solemn assembly, that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific instructions in Scripture. Hopefully after last week's message, we know why that we must not have an antinomian attitude when we enter into corporate worship. We already know of certain specific requirements like gathering on the Lord's Day to worship, 
And we know overarching principles that the scriptures lay down, like Romans 12, 1-2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in one sense, for the Christian, all of life is regulated by the scriptures and we are obedient to it. The last thing that we would want to do is offer up strange fire and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There is a group of people, however, that believe that there is a normative principle of worship where they would agree that the Bible is the final authority, but we can do whatever is not expressly forbidden. That means we could have clowns dramatizing a Bible story. We could make our worship more like a TED Talk or some kind of Apple event. Why not? Since the Bible doesn't expressly forbid it, and it feels like it's God-honoring. And while I am not against using creativity to worship God, I believe there is a gaping hole of weakness with this kind of mentality. Many who hold to this kind of thought also hold that the Bible, or at least certain parts of the Bible, are outdated, they're old, they're irrelevant. And because now there is a void where Scripture once directed, we must now fill it with the appropriating or appropriate current culture. We must fill it by appropriating current culture. This is the inevitable slide toward man-centered focus. You know, what I'm saying is people who don't believe certain aspects of the Bible and saying we should worship this way because it feels good, what we are doing is we are appropriating culture. So we are undertaking the understandings of the world and putting it in our service because what the Bible spoke on, we have said this is secondary, this is not necessary, and I get to put in then what I think is right. So what you're really doing then, if you're not looking at the Bible, is you're taking what you believe is culturally correct and putting it and inserting it into worship. You know, why go all the way to the courts where the brazen altar is to get the fire when I'm a master fire maker myself? I could just make fire. Do you know how skilled I am at making fire? And I can light the fire, the incense altar, right there. Why go through all that trouble? This is the inevitable slide toward man-centered focus where we have charismatic and Pentecostal movements alike that hype up people. The sermon is a hype. And they would then respond, this is the word I needed to hear. Because the ultimate litmus test for those that would believe that they are on the normative side is since the Bible doesn't expressly forbid it, how do I know it's good? How do I know something is good if the Bible doesn't expressly forbid it? It must be good to me. That's the ultimate litmus test. I get to decide what is good. Well, I don't mean, you know, the service is kind of like boring to me, that kind of thing, because I am the ultimate litmus test. Or if you're a church leader, pragmatism will be your guide, where you measure something based on how the congregation responds. 
And as a pastor, I will tell you that truly is a huge temptation. Is it any wonder then why we have gone to an entertainment-based gathering? I still remember, and I don't think I'll ever forget, a former youth student of mine commenting that they didn't need to go to church anymore because EDM concerts gave them the same feeling. Why go to church when going to a concert will give you the feeling of euphoria that you need? However, the reformers like Calvin and the Westminster Divines, this is the group from where we get most of our liturgy and our catechisms where we get the Westminster Confession of Faith, viewed this matter, they viewed this matter differently. While there are general principles in Scripture that we are to obey, there must be and there is specific prescription on how God is to be worshipped corporately. Now, these are specific prescriptions that we must not, nor are we free to ignore. Calvin wrote in his writings uh, that's titled The Necessity of Reforming the Church. This is a book that our staff went over, and this is what he wrote. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. And we see this throughout Scripture. This isn't wishful thinking or guesswork. All throughout Scripture, we see that God would meticulously direct and give pattern for how worship ought to be given. God didn't accept Cain's worship. He didn't accept Nadab and Abihu's fire. He didn't accept Ananias' and Sapphira's offering. There is a true way of worshiping the true God, and that has always been instituted by God himself. We do not use the devices of men or our imaginations to conjure up what we might think would please God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the gold we use is really high-quality gold or the artistry is par excellence. The golden calf is an abomination to God. And so we must not worship according to the traditions of man or of demons. We must worship according to the values and doctrines set forth in Scripture. That, we, that means we must not go over broadly and risk antinomianism in our worship, giving elements whatever way we see fit, but we also must not put things in the appearance of wisdom and everything is like a ceremony for ceremony's sake, making everything and every single object holy and unholy. And I'm afraid a lot of high liturgy gatherings will overdo it too. They will bring in incense down the middle and they would um, practice Old Testament rituals of sacrifice that have already been fulfilled in Christ. The Bible warns us against that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is why the Reformation happened and needed to happen. And 
When we say reformed, it simply means we are going back to the scriptures. That's what it means. Reformed means we are going back to what the scripture dictates. That's just what reformed means. It doesn't mean conservative. It doesn't mean old school. It doesn't mean let's go back to the way they did it like 2,000 years ago necessarily, but it means that we're going back to what the Bible dictates. There is a motto, a slogan of sorts that during the Reformation, people would adopt, they would hold, and that was Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, um, Secundum Verbum Dei. We are called to be the church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. The church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. And this is how the charismatic church and others who adopt a normative principle or whatever they want, this is how they miss the mark so greatly. Take, for example, the speaking in tongues. And I've spoken on this at length, at length before when we went over 1 Corinthians 14. And I have taught that speaking in tongues had all ceased. All the church fathers believed this. I'm not the first person to say it. All the church fathers believed it from Augustine to Calvin. They all said tongues have ceased. But for some reason, it popped back up into mainstream church evangelicalism some odd decades ago. And now the measure of your spiritual maturity is not sanctification by a holy living, but it's how you exercise spiritual gifts like tongue, prophecy, and healing. This grave error by full continuationists has led to many more errors, like thinking that apostles and prophets still exist. You know, after that whole spitting fiasco, I went onto that church's website to see what they believe, and they believe that there are still apostles and prophets today. They call it the fivefold offices, and they still believe that. Gatherings then just sound like a bunch of noise when they pray. No one can discern on what's being said because the focus is on how loud you babble rather than the deep meditation and responses together in unison to God's word. Even when tongues were on the way of ceasing, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and expressly taught the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 27-28. He said, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Quick pause. This is a huge gathering. All the people in that city would come. The church is about the whole city would come. We didn't have these small denominations like we do now. So you can imagine all people are coming. And he goes, only two, at most three. And then if they do, there must be an interpreter. And in verse 28 says, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. If there is tongue, and Paul was teaching the church in Corinth, there must be an interpreter. You can't have all these people shouting gibberish and edifying no one. There must be order in worship because God is a God of order. And yet what we see is that now if you start neglecting one part of the word, it really is a slippery slope. That slippery slope is real and you can't help but to neglect other parts of the word. I'm going to give you an example, something that has been caught on by this craze, and it has gone on 
by the mainstream and televised in our cable networks. There is a televangelist by the name of Sid Roth. And I was watching one of his, um, you know, shows or whatever, revival meetings. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And Sid Roth tells a story of one of his mentors or someone that he follows, someone that he admires, who has the gift of healing. And I'm going to quote him um, here. Some parents had a two-month-old baby dying in the hospital. The parents kidnapped the child and took the child to a Smith Wigglesworth meeting. That's the person that he respected. Smith looks at the child, looks at the parents and says, can I do what God tells me to do? Well, what would you do if your parents? Child is dying anyway, right? He takes the two-month-old, throws the baby against the wall. Then the baby's on the floor. Have you ever seen someone play soccer? Have you ever seen them kick a soccer ball? He does that with the baby. And the baby falls into the congregation. There's no crying. Is it dead? It's 100% healed. Then applause. This is not just some one-off example. Stories like this are abundantly shared amongst the charismatic crowd. Examples of healing, what they would call the moves of the Holy Spirit, and so on. I believe that these egregious examples of undermining our faith comes from leaders and people who do not know the word of God. And so the regulative principle of worship is no small matter. I would think then it is the difference between God honoring, that means life giving, versus judgment and death. To take it seriously then is to take worship seriously. If we want to take God honoring seriously, we ought to take worship seriously. So what was the result when the fellow reformers or the reformers and the Westminster divines came together? They would see which elements were necessary, expressly um, prescribed in the Bible that were necessary in corporate worship. And so here are some particular highlighted elements that I want to share with you today. And number one is the reading of the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Number two, the preaching of the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Number three, singing the Bible. That's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, and Colossians 3, 16. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Number four, praying the Bible. In Matthew 21, verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Number five is to live out the Bible in the two sacraments that the church has been given by our Lord Jesus Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to read you all the verses, but I'll give you the references in case you listen to this again and you want to write it down. Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38, 39, 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, Colossians 2, 11 to 12. There are other elements like the collection that we've went over in 1 Corinthians 16. There are occasional elements like oaths and vows that we saw one of our sisters recently do on Christmas. There are thanksgivings, confessions, fasts that are all recognized and highlighted and they are shown in the Westminster Confession of Faith. However, it's important to recognize or it's important that we recognize that we must do these activities free from impropriety. You can't be a clown on the pulpit. I think that should be a given. You can't turn it into a musical. You're not free to act a fool. And on the flip side, we should see that we should not judge on matters that are adiaphora, like whether to sing a contemporary song or a classic hymn, as long as they are doctrinally sound. I don't think it's an issue if you choose when we go up to have communion to wine or the grape juice, but all things should be done decently and in order, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.40. So there is room for creativity more than probably initially thought, but the necessary elements must be there. That's the regulative principle. All of this is in hopes that we won't offer up strange fire, but a worship that is pleasing to God. Worship according to what he has revealed in his holy word. And ultimately, this can only be done then through the Holy Spirit. This is what we asked in the beginning of the message, the prayer of illumination. It is the Holy Spirit that illumines the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And this is how John 4, 24 is fulfilled. When Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit illumines the word, enables us to comprehend, empowers us to appropriate that truth by grace so that we can worship the Father in the acceptable manner. We could never and can never offer up to the God an acceptable worship, however, on our own. And even, when, even if we were given instruction, even when people would, give, would be given that instruction, we would still fail they still fail. The lesson of the strange fire is that we are a Nadab and Abihu. Without the grace of Jesus Christ, we are Nadab and Abihu. It's because we are fallen men and women. We fall short of the glory of God. Even though maybe in our fallen state we're able to worship, we have lost the ability to worship properly. That's why we tend to worship idols. Calvin calls the human heart idol-making factories. Our faculties are running amok because of sin. And when Jesus would say that there will come a time when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, he was telling this to a woman at the well in Samaria that he is the Messiah. That's the point of that part. He is the Messiah, the one who will be able to guide God's people to proper worship. Outside of Christ and his word, we can never have anything God-centered. It is only through Christ that we can have God-centered worship and God-centered lives. While the people in the Old Testament look forward to someone who would guarantee access to the Father, we look back and we also look forward to the one in whom God was pleased with that guarantee 
who guarantees our access and surety in worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. So this worship, the audience, is Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ who guarantees that we are able to worship him properly. So praise be to God. Let us continue on then as people of God, sanctified and growing in sanctification until God glorifies us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us. And we thank you that even though perhaps we were raised or because of our sin, that we tend to think worship is about us being satisfied and forgetting who the worship is truly for. God, forgive us of these Uh, of this ignorance, of this blatant disregard for what you have written in your word. But, oh God, by your grace, help us now to understand what is written in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now truly exercise a worship that is pleasing to you. Guide this church, oh God, that we may humbly follow you all the days of our lives until you come again and we meet you face to face. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God and offer him a prayer that implores him that we would give, whether it's in corporate worship or in our lives outside of this place, proper worship, a worship that is pleasing to God. Let's pray.